you can have different ways of seeing at the same time and different approaches. You can be pluralistic in your approach. Um, But it's kind of presented as this kind of binary decision of you're either this or you're that. You use this or you don't. And life just isn't like that. And just how can you think one system will work for you consistently for every ailment or every condition? I am publishing a book through Unbound. Unbound are a publishing company, which means that they don't publish things that they don't think are good and that they edit. The thing that makes them different from other publishing companies is their half publishing company and half crowdfunding company, which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books pre-order those books. They can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback, or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering. Unbound approached me in December to see if I wanted to adapt my show What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity into a book and I said yes please I definitely would like to do that and so that is what I'm doing if you go to the Unbound website and there'll be a link to this in the show notes you can find Mansplaining Masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book the way that this book is going to get made is by people like you pre-ordering it and pledging to it and people like you telling other people about it sharing it on social media recommending it to other people those kinds of things you can find out what the book is fully about by reading about it on the page there's a video of me in a purple dress and fedora with my childhood toy dolphin telling you about what the book is about But basically, Mansplaining Masculinity is about looking into myself and looking out at culture and thinking about how masculinity is constructed and created and how systematic elements contribute both to the ways that men are hurt by society, but also the ways that men hurt other people in society. It is not a book that says that men are the problem, but it is a book that will say that we can be part of the solution and if you want to get an idea of what it's like before you pledge to it you can listen to a podcast of the show that it's adapted from on the website mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk and also there was an episode of BBC Radio 4's Forethought called Liberating Men which was a reflection on an extension of the show so Listen to those shows, see if you like what you hear, and if you do, then please do support and pledge to make mansplaining masculinity happen. The environment can change and then suddenly immigrants are the problem. And so actually being in a, a job that's very essential is a way of being safe. And it's it's kind of interesting that I think being in that kind of role, I never had to really consider race because I was kind of safe or had a status within that profession. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Nav. Hello Nav. Hi Dave. (laughs)
yeah, and like, it's always a little bit surreal to... I mean, it's already surreal. I was commenting on this when I brought out the form that I always fill in with people before we start, how that kind of feels weird. And then it feels even weirder, right, when I stick my headphones on and stick the microphone yeah. on. Yeah. And then kind of, like, think... So we've met through Spark. Right. And so we kind of know each other through our stories that we've told. But right. But we've... Hardly ever really sat down and spoken. This is true. So, the, yeah, the, so the first question I ask everybody is, how do you know me? And it sounds like we've already started that one. So, yeah, that's true. This is what happens with Spark. It's so weird. You know really intimate details about someone's life because they've told that story. But you don't know all the basics, the stuff yeah. that you sort of, like, would know about somebody if, if you knew them. And you probably wouldn't know those more deep things. So, yeah, it is a weird situation. We've had a chat once about a project that we're doing in the future and when we yeah. did when we had that chat we also talked about lucid dreaming <laughs> um so we we kind of know a bit more about each other and our opinions and thoughts around lucid dreaming yeah but that's it i, I mean you probably know more about me than i know about you as well because i've tell a lot of stories at Spark. You have told quite a few, so I know a few bits, but yeah. probably you know more than I do. I'm always a bit nervous because I, I never know what audience members, what stories they've heard of me, so what what parts of me they, they think that they can judge me by. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because um, I remember Banker at Spark kind of saying, I'm not sure what stories to tell and, wh- and whether people have heard other stories and what picture they've built of me right and do they think that they know me through these stories right and the choices that you make to to share a story in a certain way so I wondered if that was had you ever thought about that or yeah I mean I definitely think about it I mean I don't know if I can work it out like you can't really work it out like what story to tell what who's in the audience who's heard what before I try not to tell the same story twice or at least if I do, I try to tell it in a different way with maybe different plot points brought in and some of the others left out and a different way of, of framing that story, that kind of thing. But it is definitely weird. Like if somebody comes one time, they might think of me as somebody who works with children. Another time they might think of me as uh, somebody who goes to a sex club, right? Those are very different things that they both happen to me. Or like, you know, sometimes if I, if I lead with something that reveals my politics, that means that they've got a very different perspective of me than if I lead with something about me being a jerk Back in the day, right? Like all of these things yeah. uh, are factors of how people work out what what to think of you. And as the host, when I'm hosting, there's an extra responsibility too because it's like I don't want to alienate people because I have to be the voice of the audience yeah. to a certain extent. I have to be with the audience. I have to give them permission to share their stories, but I also have to be someone they trust to share their stories with you know so it's a it's a complicated one um and I don't know if I always have got that right like I definitely think that the night where I started with a, a story about the origins of why I'm an anarchist probably like massively alienated the audience because <laughs> oh. just the word anarchist uh alienates people just in its on, on its own yeah because I had that when I hosted at Exmouth Market and I told the story of being at the checkpoint in Jerusalem that's right and that I I had a few comments from people in the audience. Right. Yeah. Right, because that's a complicated... Yeah. A complicated intersection of a few different issues happening right there with you going through a checkpoint yeah, in Jerusalem. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to judge it. Yeah. And you can't please everybody. Nobody's, no. And particularly if you do bring politics into it, you're definitely not going to have 
all of the audience agreeing with you. Yeah. All you can hope for is that everyone agrees that this is a space where different political opinions can be mentioned in the context of true stories. You know. Ah, but does Spark try to be kind of apolitical or not? I don't. I'm not sure. We're yeah. we're, we're an evolving organisation, and mm. certainly we're kind of into a new phase at the moment. So there's going to be new people being involved in the running of it, p- new people deciding on those kind of policies. I would say we haven't really decided on any policies. We've yeah. been kind of going ad hoc for ten years. But I tr- definitely I try to slightly remove my politics from Spark when I'm hosting. Like I will say. That's my personal perspective, not the opinion of Spark. But then I have quite radical political opinions quite often, so that's kind of more necessary to do. Uh, And also, like, if I talk about drugs or something like that, I'll be like, you know, Spark doesn't necessarily condone or approve of, of drug use or not or not drug use you know so I try to keep that sort of stuff out of that and that's partly for Sparks looking like a place where anyone can come mm. so like it's, it's okay you know I'm not expecting the audience to to share my opinions I just want everybody to listen to each other's stories that's the hope yeah yeah and I've heard a few of your stories and like one of your stories maybe the first one I heard you tell is like one of the kind of it's one of the classic Spark stories like it's like and I think you you did it with the moth as well right as well I think yeah a few years later yeah Mm. and so I guess that's a story you've told a few times and it's not necessarily one you want to be defined by as well it's a weird one yeah like I have that like I've told quite a lot of like bleak complicated stories and and I don't think I'm always a bleak complicated person so I don't want to be defined by that but I also think it's important to tell those stories right yeah I feel like that definitely with the phone box story I think I just really wanted to kind of share my experience of what it's like in that situation or, you know, because people always question, why didn't you shout for help? Why right. didn't you, you know, all of those things. Right. And, and also what it is to trust your intuition and your instincts. Yeah. And... I mean, to give people a little bit of context, it's kind of um, like, it's, it's a kind of me too area story way before me too is kind mm. of uh, in people's kind of public consciousness although probably not before it was started by by the original starter of the hashtag but certainly yeah and it was mm. yeah so it was a, a story that was kind of and I, I worry about that a little bit with spark as well because you know we don't give content warnings like for our stories because partly because we're mostly an open mic so we don't know what's coming next Oh, yeah, I've been thinking about that because the story that I told about my father as well. Right, recently. A, yeah. A, a Gaudem uh, collaboration with Spark, yeah. That was my grandmother. Oh, and right. Thought, yeah. Getting, see, I've heard too many stories of you. I'm getting a little confused. But, oh, God, yes, yeah. now I remember that and, particular story too. That's Yeah, that's much and, more mm, uh, trigger warning worthy. Yeah, and it's never occurred to me to give a trigger warning. Right. So it's definitely made me think about what stories to share. And, I mean, I don't... Like, I remember at Galdem, so there was a girl... A, sorry, girl. A lady who kind of said, <laughs> trigger warning, and then said something. Is that enough time? Like, I just no, didn't understand... That's it. It's complicated, what does, isn't it? Yeah, what does that mean? Or how much time is that for someone to act and say, OK, I don't want to sit here and listen to that. Right. I've, because it was just, just to say it. What does that mean? Well, I've, I've, that's something I've realised when I've got a, a kind of solo show about masculinity and at mm. the beginning of that, there's quite a long content note that does go through all of the stuff that will come up. 
um, and sort of says, you know, it's okay to leave now or at any time you want to, which is kind of giving people a bit of a run up to that rather than like trigger warning straight on. That doesn't give people time to go out. But what I've realised doing my solo show is that's not quite enough anyway, because it doesn't matter if somebody is given permission to leave. They have to feel like they can do that socially. And me saying it's okay to leave doesn't mean that they're going to feel like they're comfortable standing up and leaving because that's kind of a disclosure. Like if you stand up and you leave, then you're basically saying this has happened to me or something like that has happened to me. And not everybody obviously wants to be public about that stuff, which is perfectly, perfectly reasonable. Even as I'm public about all my shit, I totally defend the right of people to be private about any of that shit. But yeah, no, it's complicated. I mean, it's always complicated. Like, it's it's never as simple as like as anybody ever makes any of these things. I yeah. Think. Like with Spark, I try to do aftercare. I think that's something people don't think about enough. If if you, even yeah, if I they like do, you, you do know, that. right? And 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 I think that that's a big part of it. And that's something I've learned from talking to other artists as well, like uh, Cameron Moore, who's a, a a theater maker and storyteller who I really admire. Uh, she does a sort of show about phone sex and there's some really complicated phone sex stuff at the end of it that is very kind of content warning trigger warning but for the dra- the way that the, the show works she doesn't want to kind of give the the warning at the beginning but what she says at the end is come out meet with me we'll sort of be together we'll talk it through we'll process it and all of that sort of stuff so i think oh, that the, yeah, i think care is yeah. good but it doesn't always have to be the same way of approaching these things mm. and certainly we, we have to understand that no matter how safe we want to make our spaces there's no such thing as a safe space mm. and you can never get it completely right and you should always be prepared to change or to think about other people's perspectives on these things mm. but it's definitely yeah it's definitely it, it's good as well though I mean because if we did like we can't we can't give content notes for the the open mics but often people's stories of sexual assault or like trauma or those kind of things do come up and also like you know I wouldn't want to say that those stories shouldn't be told yeah because it's important for survivors to share their stories for people in the audience who are survivors to know they're not alone yeah so it's it's a complicated Mm. thing and it's and you can't I always say you know you can't give one of the things that triggers me the most, which anybody who's heard the first Spark story I ever told, which is about having a lot of trauma at Christmas, will understand. Like, I get a lot of uh, traumatic feelings. I'm, I'm kind of triggered, I guess, uh, by Christmas. Mm. But, like, you can't really give a trigger warning for Christmas. It's, it's You know, you can't say, there's going to be some Christmas trees in this. Um, like, no one thinks that that's something to... But that, yeah. that a, tr- a Christmas tree is much more likely to trigger my experiences of kind of... Uh, violence in my childhood than actually seeing something about someone being punched in their yeah. childhood like weirdly it's those sorts of things that do it so it's it's super complicated yeah i think it's different mm. if somebody is ha- required to read a text academically i think there has to be content no, there should always be if someone has to read something as part of their course like if an audience member doesn't like a show they can leave they have no requirement to stay till the end, mm. but nobody in an academic situation. Um, so I'm I'm very pro content notes and trigger warnings in that context. Yeah, and I think it's good on an uh, article. It's good to flag it up if you can. Yeah, but it's it's an impossible thing to get fully right, and I don't want people to be silenced because they're so worried 
about that sort of thing. Like yeah. I don't, I wouldn't have wanted you to not tell that story, which I think is a really important story mm. and really relatable uh, to so many people's experience. But also very important for people who have no no reference point. Like I remember after you told that story, I I th- I, I think I remember hearing whether they were talking to you or talking to each other, audience members, you know, cis white men saying, I'd never understood that that might be the experience of some women and, and, you know, really like going, oh my, you know, oh, that, you know, that really happens. And we're seeing that, you know, constantly at the moment with mm. every, every Me Too has like an echo of lots of guys going, oh my God, I just did not understand. And I, I have a bit of sympathy for those guys, not the ones who are like, shut up, no, that doesn't happen. Those guys, mm. not so much sympathy for. But I think it's important for people who don't understand that these things happen, yeah. to have that highlighted. Yeah. So I, I thought it was a really great story. But it was a long time, like a long time ago now, it feels. Like certainly before I had even thought about the idea of a trigger warning or a content note, I hadn't even come across those concepts back when you told that story. Either. Yeah, and I'd ne- I don't think I'd ever heard stories like that right, before. Right, right. So it, fe- it felt like a risk yeah. to share it. I mean, it was a risk. That's one yeah. of the reasons that... I think it became one of the kind of classics because it was an example of someone not going for the funny, not going for the kind of silly or the relatable, like in certain kinds of ways. It was like, no, here's a really fucking, like, there's no laughs in this. It's just very serious, (laughs) very terrifying. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, it's funny. It's funny. It's funny now Mm. when you think about how serious it was, but it was serious. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so the second question that I ask Mm. everybody is what do you do now? Oh my goodness. Well, I've decommissioned myself as a pharmacist. I like using that word. Since last week, I've decided <laughs> to come off the register. So you're not a, so you definitely are not a pharmacist. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, for about 21 years, I've been a pharmacist. And yeah, I was practicing as a homeopath as well and doing the both. And uh, yeah, that's caused a lot of problems, really. And, uh, yeah, I kind of just, I've got sick of it. And I think I've just, it, it's kind of complicated just because it's, homeopathy is one of these things where people just don't understand it. There's no evidence. So it's not an evidence that you like. And there are groups of skeptics that go around kind of filming undercover and reporting, trying to report you. And so it's just been really difficult and complicated. Right. And, uh yeah, I think I've just done it for too long now and just want a break and just want to be able to write about it freely. Right. So that's kind of where I'm at. Right, so you're not in either camp and you're not having to, like, worry about the blowback from either side of that. Yeah. Because there's probably some blowback on on both sides. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, full disclosure, I'm not 100%, well, I'm not (laughs) even 100%, like, that's putting it even more strongly. I I don't, I'm pretty convinced that I don't think there's much within homeopathy personally Mm. but I'm certainly I'm agnostic about everything so I I have to also be agnostic about about medicine and also I think that there is some value in in some of the elements of it and and you call it complementary right medicine rather than alternative medicine right is that is that what you'd call it or I think it's just a different system right I mean the language is really interesting because I think it's you know, to say it's alternative, alternative to what? That this dominant system of medicine is the right, right. For, or superior form of medicine. Right. 
and that other systems are not valid. Right. Um, That's fair. These people Very are fair. point, you know, point fingers at acupuncture and Chinese medicine. I have it's the same across the board, not just with homeopathy, but for different reasons. And then I think there was probably everyone's trying to ingratiate themselves to the medical system and saying it's complementary and that you can use the both together. And that hasn't worked. And then it was integrative medicine. And now it's just like, you know, it's just different. Right. But it doesn't mean that you can't use the... You can you can have different ways of seeing at the same time. Right. And different approaches. You I, can be pluralistic in your yeah. approach. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of presented as this kind of binary decision of you're either this or you're that. You use this or you don't. And life just isn't like that. Right. And just how can you think one system will work for you consistently for every ailment or every condition? You know, every, I suppose every, every decision needs to be considered. So it's not a reflexive decision to kind of keep having more medication and really thinking about your interventions that you're using. But I think one of the reasons why, I mean, because homeopathy has been so complicated and the problems it's caused me, really. Right, just but, the um, word makes, <laughs> makes people go funny. I right? know. Mm-hmm. But I'm kind of starting to enjoy that more. <laughs> and uh, I think it's just because it... Why I think it's so important is because it really holds a mirror to medicine. And this idea that it's a placebo, it's in your head, it's kind of implying that some of these patients or people who use it are hysterical. Like it's... Right. So then there's this kind of right, power imbalance right. and the, you know, the power... Di- it reveals the power dynamics. And, you know, it's like I remember even my father kind of going to the doctor saying, I'm in pain and it's looking at an x-ray and kind of saying, there's nothing wrong with you. And it's just like, you're not listening to the patient in front of you saying, saying, right. I need help, I'm in pain. No, I've had that experience too, yeah. So I think, yeah, just... And I think, you know, me, me and your father are examples of people who've had that experience, but that experience is also going to be a very gendered experience, which, you know, mm. is, is going to be a lot more women are not believed by med- medical practitioners and also a race racialized yeah. experience. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah, and a classed experience. Basically, Absolutely. every way that people are marginalised, yeah. the, the more marginalised you are, the less you're believed. Yeah, but it doesn't, I think, <laughs> I suppose kind of met like one of the, from the alternative camp looking at the medical system, it's always like, oh, it's so reductive. Right. But I think that's that's what's so useful in alternative medicine is that it really contextualises the individual's experience. Right. And that right. is right. what I found so important. It's like it joins and connects the dots that I would want to know about your diet. I want to know about the environment you live in, what is affecting you. I want to know about intergenerational trauma. I want to know about what your mother's pregnancy was with you. I want to know about, I want to know that narrative and how you came to this point. That's part of the treatment. It's it's safe to not connect the dots because then you don't have to ask questions. You don't need to know where your food comes from. You don't need to know about pesticides you don't need to know if there are antibiotics in your food or it suddenly places you in the world and what what are all these factors affecting my health right so it's about you and the world around you which is you know one of the things when when uh interacting with mental health and mental health services that i have, have, have often sort of 
come up against personally, but also talking to people who are much more knowledgeable about these things. It's been su- suggested to me that, you know, it's, it's always that you go and you say, I have this problem, and they, they, they locate it within you. Yeah. They don't think about the world around you. So, you know, people of colour go in and say, I'm really depressed, and they go, well, that's something you have to deal with inside you. And it's like, well, racism's fucking depressing. Yeah. So why wouldn't you say it's reasonable to be depressed? Like yes, it's a reasonable yes. feeling to have. You what have you got? Nine nine to five job that you're actually working three hours longer at the end of it, and it's a two hour commute. You've got no time for yourself. Of course you're depressed. It's not your fault. Yeah, like that's that's not that it's anybody's fault to have things internally to deal with as well, because a lot of those things are first of all come from outside. Like we have a load of internalized stuff to yeah. deal with, um, and you know, but also. Yeah, like traumas or whatever that we have in our childhood, that's external as well. Mm. But also the internal stuff, like, uh, you know, different chemicals or whatever that's working inside us, of course that's important and part of it too. And I guess that's what you're saying when you're saying that, looking at it all holistically, is that all of these factors matter. Mm. So when did, like, when did you kind of, which, well, which of those things came first? Pharmacy, being a pharmacist, like being interested in pharmacy and being, like, going towards being a pharmacist as a job or homeopathy or like which yeah did they come at the same time okay so I'm just the stereotype where I was kind of steered very strongly into pharmacy so I actually just wanted to be a writer and uh, (laughs) mum was just like that's just not gonna happen you know you're you're Asian and you're you're a woman just it's just not gonna happen yeah we've got the we've got got the sheet it says doctor um or wife like I yeah. can't even you know that's yeah it's it's a but harsh it, yeah harsh, it is it's harsh. really hard um <laughs> but then I think kind of like in the context of even now I really can see why I kind of I don't I don't blame my parents sure, for that yeah actually well it's a, um, it's, a, it's a way of uh surviving yeah right? and that is the th- that I guess that's the message that was given to me that this isn't about having choices or really really living a life it's surviving and I'm sure, I don't know if I've imagined it, but certainly the message was, you know, if you do one of these jobs, it's very hard for them to get rid of you because when the wind, you know, the wind, the way the wind blows or the way it changes, it will affect, they'll look at, they'll come to you first. That, I don't know if that makes sense, but in terms it of where they're pointing yeah, the finger, yeah. because, right, yeah, it changes. Like the environment can change and then suddenly, you know, immigrants are the problem, and so actually being in a, a job that's very essential is a way of being safe. Right. And it's it's kind of interesting um, that I think being in that kind of role, I never had to really consider race because I was kind of safe or had a status within that profession. Right, you've got a white coat. Yeah. And that kind of puts you closer to whiteness. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and now kind of coming out of that, um, like I wrote, yeah, it's, I'm really kind of seeing my brownness more. I'm right, seeing my right, own brownness right. more. Um, and I think part of the whole thing with the pharmacy is I just, it just felt like a very kind of servile, obedient, compliant position to be in. And I'm not knocking it for anybody else. Sure. Um, but one of the things I've actually found problematic I think with the whole kind of immigrant rhetoric is that 
I kind of see um, some Asian people, South Asian people kind of saying, oh, I'm going off to my job in the NHS to kind of look after, look after. And I, I find that really hard to do to justify or legitimise mm. the, their reason for existence or it's OK to be here. I right. find that really... The kind of good immigrant thing. Yeah, I find that really hard. People feel that they have to prove how worthy and useful they are to society. Yeah. When in fact, being a human is enough yeah. to be allowed to live in the world. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not, but it should be. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of a very utopian statement, but it shouldn't be. It's like a really basic thing that we just yeah. can't get right. Uh, yes, and and so right. So you were pushed into towards farm, <laughs> yes. not you know, not in an yes. unpleasant way, not in a way where we're 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 not blaming your parents, but you no. were pushed towards that. <laughs> as a way of, of as a career but you wanted to be a writer yeah but and but weirdly I never really it was just pharmacy so it was never something I explored or never thought I could at the same time right um so it's only then when I qualified probably probably about a year into qualification and I was just like working in a pharmacy going, I, I just don't get this and I don't kind of chatting to people and kind of going, how, how are your meds working out for you? And kind of saying, well, I'm actually, I still have the same problems. I've got a few more side effects. It's not really doing anything or but I just take them. I just found that really fascinating, that kind of compliance and right. not questioning and right. having this idea right, right. kind of imposed on you. And, well, I don't want to bother the doctor. And this is all they said that they can do. So therefore, this is all that I do. Right. Those sorts of questions kept kind of swirling around. Well, yeah. Going, well, what, what is the point of it then? Wow. If it's not improving your quality of life or why do you take it? Right. And why do you not question? Right. And then why, why, why is that all that you're allowed? Like, that's like, cause I, I'm not against uh, people taking antidepressants. Mm. Um, I don't. But I, I, I know people who that's very useful for. But it took me, you know, six and a half years to get therapy on the NHS, talking therapy. Yeah. But if I'd have said yes to antidepressants, I could have got that the first time I went in and said I had uh, issues. Like they were happy to prescribe in that initial thing of me saying I, I've got depression and anxiety. Uh, they, they didn't even believe me, but they were happy. They would have been happy to prescribe. That was the implication. But when I wanted therapy, that took a lot more work to get. And like, you know, and I'm super privileged. So mm. for me to be able to force that through is easier. Like every time I went to try and get mental health services, I was always thinking, you know, if I was not an English speaker, if my skin wasn't white, like if I wasn't a man, all of these things, like I wouldn't necessarily be able to be, if I didn't know, if I hadn't learned how to be an awkward middle class person that insists on getting fair treatment. Yeah. Then I would not have been able to get any treatment. And that takes energy. Yeah. And absolutely. if you're not if you're not well right. or you're vulnerable, you're not resourced enough, I mean to fight that fight or to ask for something else or to kind of say this you know, I think that was the thing when I worked at the homeopathic hospital, the Royal Homeopathic which is which is almost made redundant now. Um <laughs> You know, a lot of those patients that came through, the the fight that they had to, they had on their hands to kind of get referred because the medicines weren't working for them. Right. It wasn't, but they weren't being the good patient. Right. You know, and it's it's 
it's be obedient, take this prescription, and it's you're, you're, you become a problem if this isn't working. Okay, then we'll try another drug. And I'm not against, you know, pharmaceuticals, but right. it's there's a place for everything. Right. And it's really, it depends on the individual, right. what's right what's right for you. Right. Well, that's it. Yeah. And there's all sorts of different kinds of care that we don't even yeah. value. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. Like, if, if somebody's in a homeopathy clinic and they're getting loads of different kinds of care apart from just the the one controversial kind of thing that everyone shouts about they're also getting listened to like respected all of these things Mm. that you know you you give someone medication but don't give them any of those things and how are you expecting them to get better like there's Mm. a lot of elements to care yeah you know I mean that's interesting how did you end up going from being the pharmacist to that to that uh, homeopathy clinic then I think well it was um there was a woman who'd so I was working in Hillingdon and there was a, an elderly woman who'd just moved to kind of be near her grandchildren and she'd come in to get her prescription and she was just so homesick and hadn't wanted to move and was so upset and her symptoms had aggravated and and I remember thinking, you know, if you if I refer you to a doctor, you're just going to get they're just going to increase your dose of your medicines but this is something else this is there's a grief here there's a kind of homesickness and how do you address that without having to be medicated again right um and i remember she kind of just pointed to this dusty shelf of homeopathy and said what are those could they help me and i was like i don't know what they are and she's like why are you selling them and i'm like lady we sell shampoos i don't even understand you know <laughs> um and so that's how i kind of got interested in it uh yeah, and I remember just trying it once. I'd kind of found a remedy, because you have to kind of match symptoms to certain remedies. Right. And uh, I remember trying it and doing like a little trial timing when I was going to take it. I made sure I wasn't using anything unusual for my dry skin for like a few weeks before, timed my doses. And uh, yeah, the next day after about three doses of, of a remedy sulfur, my skin just dramatically improved in a way that I couldn't quite understand. I hadn't done anything else differently. And right. that was when I started exploring. Right. Um, and that, yeah, that kind of made sense to me, the whole mind-body connection that, yeah, that that's, an in, you know, your mental health and emotional health is an intrinsic part of your health and that can affect right the physical symptoms right i mean and i mean mm. i mean i'm I, I i think of myself as a kind of pragmatist i guess mm. like in general as much as i'm an anarchist i'm a pragmatic one yeah um and i think that that you know that's the thing it's like if something works then it works that's how i kind of think of it if mm. something works for somebody then it works for that person why would you stop that thing from 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 working obviously you know there are cases of people who take homeopathic remedies and don't get other forms of of, of medical care mm. and that kind of can be a, a big issue you know like homeopathy is not going to cure uh, cancer or cure like lots of different things that people do need to get like help mm. for so I don't want to like encourage people not to like pursue <laughs> pursue all of their options yeah. but at the same time I also think that people who are like getting really angry about something that works for somebody in their subjective experience of the world makes it easier to live. And, like, let's face it, it's not easy in, in lots of ways to live. Mm. Like, being, 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 being alive in many, many 
for many people in many places in many moments is hard and so anything that makes it easier for people I'm all for right and so that's that's interesting that that was kind of yeah that 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 was the the experience that you had was that it worked for you um and then so that led you then to go right it works for me let's go and see how it works for other people right yeah and there was but there was a lot of ambivalence as right. to because it's not going to work but then that's the same with, with normal medication normal true. medication yeah, exactly that's absolutely true. it's that's the thing it's it's everything is an experiment really to see what will work for you and what won't right we have to keep you know even with medication we have to tailor the dosage make sure it's the right dosage and we need to con- consider your you know, your renal health and your liver health. Yeah. There's all of these different aspects. Are the side effects yes. worth it? And yeah. like all of those sorts of things as well. Yeah. So, yeah. So it was kind of uncomfortable to kind of be in that position. But whenever there was like a limitation and it's it's not like it's going to stop someone, ha- re- you know, um, receiving treat or, or exploring a different form of treatment. and Right. Yeah. Then why not? So, yeah, it's an... Yeah, I was just, I started working in a homeopathic pharmacy and I had no idea at that time, um, like it was a supply, it was suppliers to the palace. The, so, right, yeah. right, right, so very um, official establishment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, must have made my parents proud. Right, right. Look! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah we definitely don't have to worry about her, she's yeah, yeah. working for the, for, the, for the royals now, Goodness. she's properly here. <laughs> yeah, but it's another world, another world, and it's... Yeah, it's def- it's very popular in different countries around the world as right, well. And right. that's one of the things, I suppose, always had that, that tension. People always said, how could you be a pharmacist and a homeopath? That's impossible. One's got molecules, the, other, the other's got no molecules. And, but it's, I guess, for, so a long time, for a long time, I was trying to reconcile those two parts of myself. Right. And then I was like... Like I'm an Asian in Britain, you know. Like I'm, it's the same kind of thing. Like, right. these, of course, I can do that. And but I was really trying to understand, kind of, where homeopathy fit fitted into all of that. And so yeah. then I started studying the history of medicine, which is very Eurocentric, um, and then kind of found how homeopathy was kind of a really important part of almost. Yeah, the resistance to the British in in India. Right, interesting. Yeah, it's because their their own traditional systems of medicine were undermined right. by the British, um, and then suddenly there were there was like a kind of um, the Bengali lit- literati, if you say they they'd kind of discovered homeopathy, and they were like, well, this is very modern, and it's not British; it's from Germany, and that's <laughs> kind of how it took off, and it was a way to kind of be empowered without having to rely on British medicine. Right. So now homeopathy takes on a different meaning again, because everything depends on context. And that's definitely something that yeah. anybody who, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, more extreme anti-homeopathy people should take that, keep that in mind that when you're defending science, you're defending a European white uh privileged institution that has done harm to millions of people who are you know across the whole of the world not even just people of color have been like destroyed by this industry you know like there's there are you know plenty of white people get treated terribly by medicine as well but like 
properly if you're a person of color like like i've talked to some people you know on the podcast about this before and it's like well why are you going to trust the people who like when they were doctors in the past they they weren't looking after you you know they would they were going to do you damage so like it's interesting that you know people feel that they have to be doctors in order to be accepted in this society but for a, a, a large parts of the communities that they come from have got massive suspicion of doctors right? yeah so it's it's people it, like whatever wherever you come from you have to acknowledge that like if you want to persuade people not to do homeopathy don't do it so arrogantly and then maybe they'll listen like, yes. maybe, like say what? you know my perspective is also biased my perspective also comes from being like through, through history and it's not objective and there's not like this is the answer it won't change because it will always change and that's the other thing. Like, yes. So many scientific initial under- things, like we thought the world was flat, like we know it's not. We thought that gender was binary, now we know it's not. These things take time. Yeah. And like this idea that we're like, oh yeah, well now I got to this point, I know everything and nothing can change. Yeah. And I can't be proved wrong. Yeah. That's a dangerous position for people yeah. to be in. So I can. And yeah. to kind of present it almost as apolitical. And, but yeah, and that it is actually. A construct, right, right, absolutely. So no wonder people are suspicious of it, and but they, it's not those aren't those aspects aren't addressed. And I think if that was a bit more, if there was more dialogue around that, people would be right more likely to kind of engage. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, science has kind of legitimized eugenics. I mean, exactly, it's, you know, exactly. and racism, right? Another, so yeah, yes. you know, you can't kind of. <laughs> Yeah. Well, this is it. I mean, and, and and it's it's so it's so short an amount of time that people have gone from some of the most terrible things uh, in the history of kind of human civilization being done in the name of science uh, to science should be treated completely as the the god and there is no other gods but mm. science is a mm. big kind of it's, it's it's only been a really short space of time um, and people definitely forget that all the time when they get get on their high horses and don't get me mm. wrong um i mean i'm as inclined to mock my dad's occasional interest in homeopathy as the next son <laughs> of somebody um so i'm not obviously you know i'm not saying that that the that, that all criticism of homeopathy is kind of unjustified or whatever but it's just think about where people are coming from on, 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 and i guess that's the same for homeopaths mm. as well like when mm. when you do get a lot of homeopathy practitioners who do reject science completely yeah and that is also just, a mistake yes yeah right. i'm very pragmatic too yeah. <laughs> right right so okay so you so you so you went from being a, a, a pharmacist to a kind of homeopathic pharmacist but still technically a pharmacist mm. like why have you decided to stop like to decommission your farm farm pharmacistness i don't have said the wrong, it, wrong word yeah but... <laughs> um i think i've gone as far as i can right and i now i just want to kind of do some writing right and <laughs> yeah that's what i'd like to do right and you've not just and you know writing isn't the only creative thing you've done in the kind of time uh, up until now right you've also done some acting you've done some comedy right I read about oh, online. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Is that online? Well, yeah, it's on your moth. Like I said it before we started recording, it's on your moth story bio. So, oh, yeah, yeah I did a little stint of stand up. That's right. actually how I got to Spark. Right. I was told about storytelling. 
through comedy. But yeah, so I did some stand up and then I was doing some clowning. Right, that's the other thing. Yeah, yeah. You, you're you're a trained trained clown, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. The trained is very important now. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I did kind of, yeah, I think just kind of exploring all these different right. creative pursuits. So you hang on, so you do you go you went clowning, comedy, storytelling. Is that yeah, and then did a I, then I did a kind of stint of act, like it was a Meisner acting, right? So right. that was yeah, I found that quite interesting in terms of being able to just be more in the moment, kind of drop into a kind of more authentic, impulsive place, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting that you were doing these kind of creative things at the same time as you know being less in a less creative kind of job which is very common I guess um but like it's not what people expect when they go into their kind of uh, local chemist they don't think that the people giving them their their, their pills are going out and uh, dressing up as a clown uh, in their spare time <laughs> like when did writing and kind of creative things come into your life has that been since childhood yeah when I so when I was um in primary school so my parents were always giving me books on kind of grammar and maths. And so I was always ahead at school. Right. And then I think at one point, my school teacher was just like, OK, you're almost like two months ahead of everyone else. And uh, so we're just going to pull you out of the class. And I would have like a one on one time with another teacher where she's like, let's just do something kind of creative do a painting for me and then she'd I don't know what you call them those big cork boards where you put those tacks in with a strip what do you oh, call yeah. those I don't, I don't, yeah do like that? yeah I know, I know the boards you mean I used to have you just one. don't see that kind yeah. of art it's crafting all... anymore do no, you no <laughs> <laughs> probably for good reason so they got me a really big cork board so it would just take hundreds and hundreds of tacks so I could make it like a big yacht and and then I'll be like, finished, what next? And then they said, well, why don't you, um, why don't you write the class a play? <laughs> and so I did. I did like a, wow. I wrote a, a play and directed it and took the main part. And uh, well, yeah. I mean, you might as well. If you're, yeah, you know, exactly. you're doing the labour of writing it, you should get something <laughs> out of it. So that was actually how I got into it. And that was, and then I kind of started on my own, just kind of like wistfully looking through a window and writing poetry. And then I'd kind of carry this book of poetry around with me at school. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I had a book of... I think I had a book of poetry I carried around with me. Do you still book. have it? Uh, no. Um, well, no, I've got, like... So, for me, by that... Like, I, all of my poems I, I typed up on computers, printed out, like, bound them at home and then gave them to everybody. Like, I must have been the most... Like, you know, oh, wow. endless... Yeah, endless, like... Endlessly giving out anthologies of terrible poetry to everybody that I could. Oh, I um, love that. <laughs> I, I had a much more kind of. I, I believed everybody wanted to hear what I had to say when I was that age. I do not anymore uh, feel like that. Um, life has uh, has taught me that that's not so 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 accurate. Um, but I mean, as much as I want to say that's a kind of maybe a, a demarcation of like privilege, like maybe I was brought up to think like that. I've met plenty of people who thought like that as a teenager who didn't necessarily have all of the privilege like options. So I think there is a, a thing about youth of just like mm. just thinking that what you have to say is new because it's new to you. Right? Yeah, it's new to you. So it must be new to everybody else. <laughs> um, 
So okay, so you were like, so you were taking around your poetry at school and, and, mm. and wistfully looking out of windows, um, yeah. which I can relate, I relate to that too. Mm. But you didn't decide to study that after school because you were you were kind of had to had to be a the, the kind of pharmacist route, or did or did you study that like and, and no. switch over? No, no. And it, I think the most fascinating thing for me is that it never occurred to me that right. I could do that. Right. Wow! Yeah, it's almost as if yeah. all my energy was kind of rerouted into this is what you must do, right? And in order to kind of do something that I didn't want to do, took all the energy right. in a way, right? That's where the that's where my privilege comes in, right? Like I was brought up thinking that was a perfectly reasonable uh, route for me, mm. and like in fact, I, I almost didn't ever consider uh, anything practical and useful. <laughs> Like what a complete inverse yeah. of a lot of people's experience. Um, yeah, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I also feel like I wasn't told enough at school. I like, didn't have enough options given out to me. I should have thought better about it, but I was prepped in a different way, so I went in a different direction. Um, but it is very sad to me that, that, that people are like, exhibiting signs of being creative and no one in their school is going oh the person who's got that poetry book maybe they might want to write poetry like how could I help them to do that like you were literally like it's not on you for not thinking about Mm. it it's on the 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 culture not telling you you could right yeah so I mean I guess now you are though now you are thinking a bit more in that It, it that that is something for you and it sounds like you've been you know, you have thought it's for you for a while because you've been trying to do different creative approaches. I mean, a lot of those are to do with performance as well as as well as writing. I mean, yeah. I mean, did, was was the first time you wrote that play and put yourself as the lead? Was that the first performance you did? I used to be the narrator for all the oh, right. plays and assemblies. Right, you, I had, were, you were that I could kid. project. Yeah. So I was that person. <laughs> Yeah, so I kind of really like being on stage. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't know how I feel now about it all. I think I just, I don't know, I think I'm in a kind of reflective time at the moment where I just kind of want to sit back and look through windows and write. Right. Yeah. Right, and if you've got, I mean, if you are in a moment in your life where you have the space to be able to do that, then do it. Like, that's mm. the best opportunity to, like, to, like, yeah, I mean, I feel like I've been, the last couple of years, I've been very much wanting to get into a kind of reflective, off-grid, think about things. Uh, that's what I've wanted to do, but I haven't really had the kind of op- option. Mm. Um so it sounds like you, 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 if you're decommissioning yourself as a pharmacist, you must have a, a little bit of space at least to be able to yeah. to think about what you want to do. Yeah, which is great. I mean, it doesn't sound like I'm not saying like, oh, you're so lucky to have that because you know you just like laid out how you haven't had that. <laughs> yeah, you know? now I can start living. You know, when you were a teenager, you didn't sit down and think, what would I like to be. Um, so why shouldn't you do it now? Yeah. Like, you know, fuck anybody that says that, 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 that that's a, a privilege or whatever. That's a, that's a, a delayed right that you yeah. didn't have at the time. I mean, so right. So and so in terms of writing, where where are you? What are you writing now? Are you still writing poetry? No, and I don't even <laughs> think I could. Right. It's a, it's, it's 
it's kind of odd, like how I thought I could do it, I did it before and it just seems so alien now. Um, so I just kind of, yeah, like write essays and uh, I'm trying to write a, I'm trying to write a play, although I don't really like watching plays, which is problematic. Because <laughs> I'm not kind of going, but I think this one it could be worth watching. Right, yeah, so right. I'm kind of exploring that at right. the moment mm. and just little stories and things. Yeah. I mean, that's great. <laughs> and, and I mean, one of the things we talked about talking about was about race. And I guess we've kind of touched on that uh, in lots of ways, but it is... a definitely a different time to be uh somebody who is visibly uh not the default of the country whatever we want to call that like in this country now right like so Mm. I I imagine that's one of the reasons why that was something that you suggested to talk about and why why it's an issue that you're thinking about more maybe than you have in in the past I guess is that is that fair to say yeah and uh, my I think it's also kind of, I think Brexit, right. actually, the exactly. record, yeah, it was a real watershed moment for me. And my father was dying at the time. And just kind of thinking about all of his struggles and fights and, yeah, and kind of being a trade unionist and kind of just all of that and kind of just watching him die and almost, it was like, what has it been for? Right. I think that was, I found that really hard. Right. And, uh, I mean, talking to all my other friends um, of colour, where everyone was just like, well, yeah, we kind of knew this, but at least now it's more honest, it's more open in terms of the racism that's out there. Um, But really kind of, for me, actually kind of saying, seeing that we just kind of... not pre- well for me, I can only talk about me, but just kind of going along with it or or not having the voice to kind of say anything. And I think, do you know about, I think it was a year ago, I was at a writing class and this is to do with this play that I'm trying to write. I'm not very vocal in a lot of these kind of group exercises and things. And, uh, and then it came to me and they were saying, well, what's your play about? And uh, I used the word colonial and it's like the atmosphere completely turned. And uh, people who seemed very nice, you know, like kind of, to like a kind of white middle-class, uh, middle-aged woman from Surrey, it's just suddenly like beetroot-faced, just screaming. Jesus. And, uh, and kind of going, I just, but it's not like it hasn't happened. Like it is a thing, right? right. And... Uh, yeah, I think it was the first time kind of seeing, just seeing how I had been tolerated. Right. If I if I didn't say those things, then I was okay. Right. But the moment I said something like that. Right. Just a simple word describing a thing that's happened countless times throughout <laughs> history as well. Not even just like saying, although I understand why fellow white people would would be reminded of the terrible crimes we have enacted through or our ancestors or our, you know, whatever, have enacted through colonisation. We're not the only people who've even done it. It's a neutral word in some ways. It's just describing... It's like you wouldn't say, well, if someone said, um, I'm writing about war... People wouldn't be like, oh, my God, you're talking about the wars. Oh, my God, that's my wars. Like, just, but like, 
Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, that's a. I mean, I mean, I'm not. Sadly, I'm not surprised by that reaction, but I'm also like, am like that's the weird thing, isn't it? You aren't surprised, and you are. That's why yeah. I constantly feel at the moment like, um, but I mean, yeah, I mean that's as as a as a white person, I feel like you know I I should apologise for for white people in general like about that, but like not because. Uh, it's actually my responsibility, but just because we never are expected to apologise. But also, like, I think the biggest problem that white people, certainly in the UK, who who I can kind of speak to more than the rest of the world, but I think it's a common white issue, is that if white people don't look at colonisation, we won't understand our present. We yeah. won't understand where we're at. Like, yeah, it's people who aren't like us who are suffering because of this inability to look at our literal direct history um and like it's, it's, we weren't taught it in schools we were taught lies we've yeah. been taught propaganda for 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 centuries you know, for centuries and this brexit and all of that is the that's the outcome mm. like white people have been taught bullshit and now they're like why haven't i got all of the things that i never really had back in the day but i've been told i had yeah you know and if I look at my own family, like, I mean, this is, I guess, very pertinent in that, you know, my, my granddad was born uh, in India, in the, in the Raj. Like, he, he, you know, there are pictures of, of, of my, my, you know, my, my granddad's, um, my granddad and his parents and that kind of generation being carried around by people who look like you, right? Mm. And that's, like, something I, like, if, if you said, oh, I want to write about colonisation, what, what possible right would I mm. have to say you shouldn't like talk about that yeah like and I should be talking about that like I I, I actually think like we've done we did a multicultural minds night um at Spark and I had to host and I felt complicated because I was like well I'm I'm white should I be and then I realized like actually no I've got a culture too and actually I need to find my story about that like where is colonial like and I did tell a story about colonization and that's very directly related to my family because my my niece is half Jamaican so we've got like both halves of the terror terrible yeah. thing happening you know within our family yeah so Brexit is 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 I think partly because people don't use the word colonization or mm. co- colonial but actually people haven't white people haven't really thought about it we haven't been none of us have been taught it in schools right. I was at um, because there's this whole movement now of decolonising museums doing museum detoxes and I, I was at the Welcome Collection and they had a symposium there and it was extraordinary how many people just hadn't thought about the impact that it would have for a person of colour or you know or let's say someone from Ghana kind of seeing a death mask next to a birth mask right. or next to that you've decontextualized something that's meaningful to somebody and kind of the way that it's placed the value you've given it or not given it and it's yeah all through the white gaze it's these you know we tell ourselves these stories through how we're reflected in society right. or not right you know yeah, and you're somebody who, like, whilst you are, like, you're, you, you know, you you were you were born here, right? Yeah. Um, you have gone back to visit, and so you've had that kind of not fitting in, <laughs> yeah. in two different continents, yeah, two yeah. different uh, countries. I mean, some of your stories at Spark have been about that. Have been about kind of going back and not 
not speaking the language mm. of the communities that kind of are your heritage. I mean, how does that all play into all of this? Like for you, like, like, do you feel like, I don't know how, how like, as you look into like the history of medicine, as you look into like the history of like just history and stuff, how do you feel about your, your identity, I guess, with all of this st- and Brexit going on and all of these things happening? Yeah. Um, I guess, well, things certainly make sense. And I just feel... <laughs> right, right, right. Right. And uh, I think I'm just getting to a point now where it's not, I'm not trying to kind of label myself as anything, but right. that actually everyone's experience is so different and so nuanced. So, and there have been quite, you know, people I've had... So when I was at school, I was like one of maybe like three brown people in the school. And then I went to secondary school. And then I was thinking of it was like 95% South Asian. And then I just remember just freaking out because I'd learned how to adapt to that environment and then not knowing how to adapt to, like I didn't know how to relate to other Indians, honestly, when I was was, was a teenager. And then a lot of, a lot of them had come from the Punjab, their families had come from Punjab. My family came from Delhi. They were in, they were from the city. So they didn't know everyone, they didn't, I didn't have that kind of secondhand, not secondhand, but that kind of, I didn't know other people's families through a grandparent or a, there was nothing like that. So I had nothing to kind of connect me. Right. And so it was very alien right. being around other Indians in that way. Yeah. And so, and then being called a coconut and not knowing how to speak the language right. and the questions about my authenticity as an Indian woman. And they're still around it's still kind of in the ether, kind of in my community, certainly. I, I've experienced that. But I think this is a way through kind of exploring the history and now I'm kind of part of this partition project to collect stories from partition survivors. Right. This is a way of me kind of connecting and making sense. And right. my lived experience is acceptable like anyone else's. It's Right. Yeah. And you and you know the um, again the partition is a very recent thing. Like mm. historically, like if you you know if you're looking at the entirety of history, agriculture is a quite recent thing. If you're looking at like, the the entirety <laughs> yeah. of history, but like so so the you know the the partition in that moment is super recent. And also we're getting a lot of films about that kind of area now and those are again being told by not necessarily by the people who should be telling those stories so we're getting misremembered versions i mean one of the things that super pisses me off at the moment is the amount of like pro churchill films we're getting all over the place i mean india just one of many places where uh, churchill has committed terrible mm. atrocities to human beings i mean you know never mind genocide in kenya never mind like force feeding the suffragettes i mean he's got yeah. like a, everything on his hands and and He's get like you know Gary Oldman's getting the Oscar for playing him. So the partition, this project that you're doing around uh, the partition, do you want to say a little bit more about about that? We're just starting. It's a small group of historians. We're collecting stories, and uh, I think there's going to be like an installation that we've taken to all the mellas in the summer to kind of educate other Indians and South Asians about. Right about partition and it might I think it's probably going to be archived in the Imperial War Museum 
and yeah the hope is also to kind of take it into a few schools as well just to kind of talk about migration right and i guess yeah. like the the group will be not not just indians right it's like it'll be pa- oh, it's pakistani a, yeah, people as well yeah, yeah, right? yeah. yeah it's a mixture there's even yeah there's white people in there as well so what? We're all, yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, and actually, I think that's that is in some ways. You know, I can also see the value in not having any white people in it. So I'm I'm not mm. like you have to have a white person in your project uh, for it to be valid. But I I do for for similar reasons that I was saying about how I think white people need to look at our history. Like it, it, it in that respect, and also I guess it's like getting into all of the different places. If you've got people who who are different ethnicities, you can yes. kind of get keys into different Absolutely. pockets of streams. So I mean, how did you get involved in that project? I just found them on Twitter, and yeah, yeah, and just said I'd really like to, yeah, help you collect stories. Right, and stories is something you've been working within as yeah. well. Like you know, you you've been a big part of spark certainly in earlier versions of spark um and you you got very involved with the moth as well and you've kept your kind of kept on like this is, is true story the kind of out of all of the performance-based creative things that you've done is that the one that kind of has resonated the most with you then yeah because i think it's the i guess i don't have to dress up any experience <laughs> through comedy or any i can just yeah just say what you I don't have to, to make them laugh yeah yeah you it, don't have to wear a red nose yeah <laughs> I don't have to humiliate myself right you right. know and um right I, I remember like um because of all these questions about white privilege and I was it made me think about an earlier time when I was doing open mics and I remember kind of like working in the hospital and then afterwards kind of going off to an open mic and just sitting there so this was Oh my god, this was such a long time ago. It's probably about <laughs> twelve years ago, right. and uh, kind of sitting around like with twenty-one kind of um, young white males, and me kind of just waiting for our five-minute moment on, you know, to do our open mic. And I remember this guy getting up and just—it didn't look like he'd kind of made it. He didn't prepare any material as such, and was just kind of you know just shooting the breeze and just kind of saying whatever and then when no one responded kind of screaming at the audience kind of like you don't get it and I was just thinking it's when I look back I kind of think oh it really makes sense because when I had my fight you know it was such a big deal then if you were a woman as well to kind of get a spot and you know I was always on my own um but I just worked every, every minute of those five minutes as much as I could in preparation. And I was like, that to me was white privilege. Like yeah, the idea definitely. of this is my chance, so I'm going to have to work it because I don't know when the next five minutes is right. coming, you know? Right. White, yeah. people, white people are allowed to be mediocre. They're, yes. they're allowed to learn as well. Like, you, you, you know, you have to be shit hot yeah. when you get on that stage. Again, I mean, like you say, that's, that's also about gender as well. Oh yeah, there was always the question. There was always that thing of you can't talk about your background because that's not fair. Or you, that not whole fair. kind of yeah, on like honestly, <laughs> the nonsense. Wow, that was around. Yeah. Well, whereas actually, that's an interesting point though, because talking about your background, talking about who you are, is rewarded in true storytelling. Mm. That's what audiences like the most. Uh, the more you share of who you are, the, the more people relate. I mean that's probably the case with comedy audiences too. Comedians, you might want to yeah. you might want to think about that kind of thing. But <laughs> um, but you know there is no requirement for making people laugh yeah. in true storytelling, and so I guess it is it is definitely 
I think that's true. It's it's an unusual dynamic when people come to a true storytelling night because the more unusual your life, the more that is rewarded. Yeah. Whereas that is not the case, like uh, in in most areas of the arts, certainly. Wow. I mean, so it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you today. Like, um, I mean, I feel like we could probably end up talking for for a lot longer, but you know have to think of my audience as much as also have to think when my partner gets back uh, from lunch and all of those sorts of things <laughs> um and yeah we've done it in my i haven't actually said where we are today so we're in my f- flat uh background sound fans will know it's a windy day because there's been some wind sounds uh the fridge turned itself on at a point where i was like I, I, there's no point in turning it off um so background sound fans will have enjoyed the fridge humming as well but as a general rule it's been quite a, a kind of nice Sonic environment to talk in. Yeah. Um, and I've yeah. enjoyed speaking to you. It's been great. The last question that I ask my guests is, do you have anything to plug? I would probably say the storytelling sessions I've got coming up at the Welcome Collection. So they begin, I think it's the 23rd of May, but they'll be on the website very soon. Um, and that's, yeah, like a kind of a couple of hour sessions just to kind of explore storytelling and also with their up-and-coming exhibition teeth yeah teeth yeah which is such a teeth is such an evocative thing like it's initially you hear the word teeth you're like stories about teeth that's unconventional pairing but then when you think about teeth you're like whoa oh my goodness so many stories about teeth (laughs) i mean this is i'm like covering up my teeth as i'm talking about teeth because i've got you know very wonky british teeth i'm told uh, which means bad teeth, uh, which there has to be something that's kind of associated with Britain that's kind of negative, I guess. So I'm, I'm happy, happy with that. Uh, but yeah, teeth is a big story for most people, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so much. And it's one of those things that if you're, especially kind of, I suppose in different, if you're of lower class, some people would say that you're less likely to attend to your teeth. This, it just covers, right. Right. it just goes everywhere. I don't even know what to say. Yeah, yeah. it just. I mean, it goes in, yeah, it goes in every direction, doesn't it? Because it's yeah. like bright, white, like perfect teeth. Um, as much as they are a thing that a lot of people try to obtain, they're also something that when people have them, people don't trust. Yeah. Like it's, it's super complicated. You've got fake white teeth on one end and like terrible teeth on the other and people have got some some feelings about whatever the the whatever is occupying their mouth mm. <laughs> we're both we're both yeah we're, like, we're both hiding our teeth <laughs> a lot more since we started talking about teeth um so that's brilliant well i'll put links links up to that stuff um in the show notes as i do with, with all of the things that come up in the episodes too and the last thing that i ask my guests to do is to say uh, goodbye to the audience goodbye <laughs> Bye, everyone. (laughs) If you're interested in hearing about masculinity and what patriarchy does to men and to all people, if you go to the Unbound website, and there'll be a link to this in the show notes, you can find Mansplaining Masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book. Unbound is a kind of cross between a publishing company and a crowdfunding 
company, which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books pre-order those books. They can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback, or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering. You can find all of that stuff over on mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. If you're interested in reading about me and my dad and our relationship and dementia and memory and time and history and politics and love and friendship check out my essay series down to a sunless sea memories of my dad as well as making getting better acquainted i also co-produce and i guess star in the magical realist audio drama podcast the family tree in order to keep making it and to make season two as good as we want it to be we need your help so if you can afford to then please do consider signing up to our patreon appeal you can follow getting better acquainted on twitter at gba podcast you can like getting better acquainted on facebook and you can find getting better acquainted on itunes soundcloud those kind of places And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.